podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Nurse, the screens. It's time for another flat chat and Formula One meets an episode of Casualty on the cover of this month's GP Racing magazine as we take a look at how to fix Formula One. Will it require emergency surgery? And um, by uh, episode of Casualty, I don't mean that we've depicted Matt Q at the wheel of a 16-ton truck with a dangerously unbalanced load on the back, a random bottle of water rolling around on the floor of the cabin but getting ominously closer to becoming wedged under the brake pedal. Not that sort of thing. No, we've got a group of people in medical clothes preparing for surgery. And what we're asking is how to improve the spectacle of Formula One, if it can and does need to be improved, that is, without the kind of ridiculous sticking plaster solutions we've seen over previous years. So um, let's welcome two people who'd never waste time arguing over which is best out of Casualty or Holby City, or indeed ER. Live from the Fens, he's no Clooney Looney, it's Matt Q. Not the fence, Codders, just a bit off the fence. Uh, there is a hill in town somewhere. Yes, uh, I have to say, um, when you sent me the brief for this month's cover feature, you said, you, I think the exact word is like, I'm going to riff off this sticking plaster sort of motif. And uh, we didn't really speak about design after it came through. And uh, yeah, isn't Frank on red or white top form at the minute with his design? It was a brilliant cover when it landed. So hat tip to the design team team yeah at, I, uh, gp racing i i also i kind of wanted to channel that bit in the thing where they do cpr on the guy and his stomach opens up and it's got teeth <laughs> in and it cuts the, the fellow's hands off but i thought no that would that would involve us being on the top shelf with a brown envelope so um <laughs> no uh, that would be uh, to to sort of riff off my uh geographical error from earlier that would be in defense <laughs> Anyhow, joining us from the US of A, uh, a man who's just made it very clear to the nurse that what he actually said was slip off his spectacles. It's Mark Gallagher. (laughs) (laughs) Very good to be here. And I cannot believe we're going to talk yet again about what needs to be done to fix Formula One. But uh, great feature and um, uh, a very important topic because last year raised lots of questions. Yeah, it's sort of a case of um, the the in 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 my long and detailed brief to Matt, I did say you know one of the things we can ask is um, does it need fixing or does it need tweaking, and if so, you know let's let's separate out the big things from the little things, and also point out these sort of sticking plaster solutions that are the problem. Really, you know we've had DRS, we've had things like that. Can we think bigger in terms of? Could the cars be smaller and lighter is one thing that a lot of people say to me. You know, the the cars are too big, they're too heavy. And so it doesn't matter that they go fast and have powerful engines. The the fact is they they struggle to overtake because they're ponderous around corners, uh, slow corners in particular, and they take up too much space on the track. So that in combination with um, the fact that the ride's a bit unyielding, you can't take different lines through corners because 
you know, all hell breaks loose if you go over a curb. Um, that's actually reduced the number of options people have for, in, in terms of racing lines. So I feel like I'm already going through Matt's feature and stealing his thunder. So can you take it, take, t- take us through your feature, Matt, before I do a Will Buxton and basically answer my own question over the space of half an hour? No, not at all. Yeah, you sent me a reasonable, um, yeah, you sent me a sort of long, brilliant commission. Uh, I'll let listeners know, a, a commission from Codders is excellent because not only is it sort of really thorough and detailed, but he uses loads of great uh, phrases that you can basically copy and paste into your own and uh, and credit them to yourself or, or credit to what <laughs> I can take credit for. So that's excellent. But yeah, you, you're rightly asking sort of off the back of a particularly dull season, you know, how much how much does F1 need to change? And actually, it sort of links into the second half of this podcast and with Perez. Like, if you just had a teammate or another driver to go up against Max Verstappen, it would have spared the season immensely. But, you know, that wasn't the case. So you, you, you're looking at sort of the what you have in front of you. And it was, you know, an absolute monopoly. And, you know, I, I, I felt that a lot of races were underwhelming and you could look through a lot of the mid-pack and see that there wasn't so much, you know, drama there either. Um, and that's and it's never brilliant to rely on the mid-pack. Okay, there's some excellent battles, but the stakes are lower. So the excitement is, you know, necessarily low as part of that. Although I have to say the data didn't really support that. The overtakes per race were sort of you know, comparable to comparable to 2022. So why why was there such a drop-off and, and looking at that? But also, you know, it's all, all well and good picking fault, but you were keen to press home that there needs to be answers here as well. And so that balance of what is idealistic and what is pragmatic. So it's all well and good saying, you know, uh, e-fuel powered V10s and whatever, but we now know that the engine framework for 2026 to 2030 is is set in stone. So we can call for certain things, but also, you know, actually trying to give constructive criticism if ever anyone was to to read it from the F1 technical department. So that was good. And and you know, the, the sometimes you can write certain bits and they come become out of date very quickly. But it was quite nice that there was loads of quotes from Pierre Vachet, the Red Bull sort of technical um technical leader uh, uh, at the start of this month saying no f1's 2026 framework is terrible because it's patch on patch on patch you know the the case in point is that um you know legislation is dictating car manufacturers move to move towards electric powertrains so um f1 should therefore reflect that and you have the 50 50 power split between electrified and internal combustion engine which again has been dictated by road car manufacturers audi and porsche and wanting to appease their needs that's all laudable but then you know we heard uh, rumors of frankenstein cars and drivers having to downshift on straights because they didn't have the power they didn't have the recharge and so instead of addressing the core issue the lawmakers have gone oh active aerodynamics that'll help us cut a smaller he- uh, smaller gap through the air and so you know sticking plaster solutions as you originally as you originally came to me is that sort of the f- phrase that will underline this piece there's another one so unfortunately f1 seems to sort of be set on that you need to sort of take a, a backward step and look at uh the, the the bigger picture i suppose but yeah it was it was a very interesting piece and as you'll know colleagues I, I put i wanted to get it right and the first draft wasn't right but hopefully the readers get something out of it as well and it's also one of those that it could have been six thousand seven thousand words quite easily because you can address so many facets and then in order to address the nuances and and sort of um 
you know, proactively reply to counter arguments to certain changes you may or may not want to make. It could go on and on and on, but it was a really interesting exercise. So thank you for uh, allowing me to do it. It did. Well, you know, nothing is unimprovable, only unimproved. Only unimproved. <laughs> I hear that when I go to sleep at night worrying about <laughs> features because of you, Connors. Thank you. Yeah, but it's so interesting to to hear you say, Matt, that you you could easily have written six or seven thousand words. I think you could probably write a book about the 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 trials and tribulations of a sport which is wedded to the technical meritocracy that you you've also mentioned in the in the piece. Um, you know, we want the cleverest brains to produce the cleverest cars to to exploit what's available within a given set of regulations, which, you know, are designed with one idea, one outcome in mind. And as has always been the case, the regulator only has so much vision of what might be possible within a set of regulations, even when they sit down, you know, the sporting advisory group or whatever, when they sit down together and they all talk about what the future should look like, the reality is you can't get away from the fact that these teams are insanely competitive with each other and they will want to uh, ultimately exploit whatever there is within the rule book that will give them that uh, that fair advantage that everyone else will, will find deeply unfair. And you know, it's interesting, a couple of weeks ago, <clears throat> I'm sure, like, I don't know if both of you have watched it, but I sat down and binge watch the Braun Grand Prix documentary um, about the 2009 season. And, uh, you know, the whole background to the double diffuser, and etc. And it, it, it kind of made me smile because when you go back and you look at periods of, of stellar success, be it a one year or in the case of Braun, it was effectively half a season of, of mesmerizing performance, but it was enough to get them across the line. Whether it's one-year performance or whether it's multi-year domination, it's all about a team exploiting what's available within the rules and perfecting that, perhaps taking a calculated risk, going down a certain line of development. And I think as long as Formula One wants to be a sport of teams spending their time and energy on research and development, on car improvement within a set of regulations to find a competitive advantage, we will always end up with this meritocratic situation where the fastest car starts first and the second fastest car starts second and the third fastest car starts third. And this is before we even get into talking about teammates. But the fact is that it's it's predominantly always been this way in my experience, and I don't see that changing in any significant way unless we suddenly decided – it has to be a spec series, and that's just never going to happen. Uh, uh, you know, there's, there's no willingness to do that. So, it is a, it is the way it is. Um, we unfortunately are going to really struggle to come up with a formula that allows more than a couple or three teams to be in with a shout of winning races. Uh, and some of the some of the points that you, you raise in the feature, like reverse grids or, you know, having a bit of fun by, for example, requiring teams to run their reserve driver in in whatever form. Um, 
you know, those are fun ideas. And I certainly think there is an opportunity to do something with the sporting regulations that might just shake things up a little bit. But fundamentally, the outcome that we see is driven from the technical framework that the sport runs within. And I think the people who run our sport, be it the team principals be it, and team owners, be it the people in positions of authority within the FIA and Formula One, they're all really wedded to Formula One's heritage and history and meritocratic approach to the regulations, and they struggle to do anything else. I think this is why, in so many respects, the sprint race, um, sprint race innovation, it, it is actually quite a brave attempt to do something radical and different, and to try something. and uh, And I agree with Formula One's decision to, to do that because. They are just looking to see what if, what if we tried this, what if we tried that? And I think that's good. However, there is a danger that in a sport that is loved by millions of people, it's it's a bigger sport than ever. There is a danger that if you're seen to be constantly tinkering with formats, um, you just you lose you start to lose credibility and you, you start to lose people. You start to, lo- you start to lose credibility with all your stakeholders, be it the media, be it the fans, the paying public, because they just can't follow what, you, what it is you're, what, what it is you're trying to do. The one final thing I'll say on this is that uh, I wasn't joking at the beginning when I said, it, you know, this is not the first time <laughs> we've had conversations <laughs> about this. Uh, I could go back and, I mean, I remember Tony Purnell, who I worked for when he ran Jaguar Racing. Uh, I remember Tony writing a three-part feature on what needs to be done to fix Formula One. That's 20 years ago. Um, And everyone has had a go at it. And no one has yet come up with a way of shaking the sport up in quite the way that that I think people dream about where you get multiple winners and knife edge finishes and a climax, a climax to the drivers and, uh, and teams championship. Um, we've had 15 years of two team. Demo- we've had 15 years of two team domination with Mercedes and, and, uh, and, and Red Bull with essentially Ferrari and then McLaren snapping at their heels. And, you know, prior to that, you go back through the previous areas of, areas of uh, of domination, or at least at one team being clearly on top of the pile. Whether it's you know Michael at uh, Michael at Ferrari, or back to the you know the Williams era. So it it is the way it's been, and I think that unless you question the fundamentals of the technical meritocracy. It's going to be very, very difficult for anyone to change it. It is interesting the the way they've iterated around the the sprint format. And one of the questions we address is, you know, but how do you solve a problem like Saturday? And it's clear that there's a perception that Saturday needs to be titivated somehow. And and one of the questions I, I wanted Matt to answer was, or, or to ponder rather, was 
to to what extent is this pressure to do make something out of Saturday a sort of a late capitalism thing of trying to have, basically turn Saturday into another Sunday and sell if it's tickets to the to the event, the venue itself also for for formula one's point of view um hospitality increasingly lucrative nowadays and making something from saturday makes the saturday paddock club proposition a lot more attractive as well so hey well what what a surprise uh the uh, people wanted to come on saturdays and spend lots of uh corporate cash uh entertaining guests so um well you know are, you are know, the motivations but- wrong the thing is, it's it. You know, if we go into that topic, and let's talk about the brutal commercial realities. Um, when I was running the the commercial side of Jordan, we would a few times a year we would we would send two to three million dollars on a Monday morning to Formula One to pay for paddock club tickets for the following. Weekend. This is back in the day when we would have had at some of the races, such as the German Grand Prix. I remember one year at the German Grand Prix, we had 90 tables in the paddock club. We had 9,900 guests, and each of those guests was paying uh, their ticket was costing about four and a half thousand dollars. So I think we sent about four million dollars that week to to uh, Paddy McNally and the, the good people at All Sport uh, for the paddock club. Now. Those 900 people all came on the Sunday. On the Saturday, even though they paid for the tickets, we would have had less than less than 400. And on the Friday, out of those 90 tables, I would have said maybe four were full on the Friday. So you would you would go through the year and you'd realize that amongst the corporate clients and the corporate guests who are coming to Formula One events, no one was interested in Friday. There was a little bit more interest in Saturday because of qualifying. And then everybody wanted to be there on Sunday. Now, Liberty are in the business of trying to create 24, 25, whatever they end up with, events, which are massive events on every day. And the sprint race is an attempt, no, no, no question, to just not only to spice up the action and give people lots of extra things to talk about, but to make what happens on Saturday more commercially, sorry, more attractive, which makes it more commercially, makes it more commercially viable. And I mean, ultimately, if you really wanted to go for it, you would have every Grand Prix weekend, you'd have just, you'd have just have two races, you'd have a race split and you'd have, you know, a race on a Saturday and a race on a Sunday. Why call it a sprint and a, a Grand Prix? Just, you know, the Grand Prix weekend involves two races, one on a Saturday, one on a Sunday. Um, you know that that's an option. Uh, it's an option which have people screaming, no doubt, listening to me talking like, talking about that. But it is it is an option that that they could go down in the future. Um, there's long been, as we know, a uh, a feeling that the Formula One weekend was too long. You know, the four day weekend, and then compressing it into a three day weekend. And there's even been mooted talks of two day weekends at times over the years. So there's been a constant quest to play with the format to try and make this a a better package spread over however many days you decide it needs to be on but you're absolutely right uh cotters the 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 commercial focus for formula one is on trying to make 
the Saturday as much uh, as attractive and as commercially profitable as the Sunday. And that's ultimately what they're trying to trying to ensure with mixing things up and, and in, injecting a bit interest through things like the sprint race. Of course, Paddy McNally, the aforementioned Paddy McNally, former head of all sport and uh, Obergruppenfuhrer of all things hospitality, um, yeah. worked as a reporter on Autosport. And I'm reliably informed the only man who ever turned up to work for Autosport, uh, well, turned up at the offices driving a Ferrari. Okay. Yeah, Matt, Matt Hughes turned into a block of salt there at the very thought of uh, some an Autosport <laughs> journalist earning enough cash to be able to afford a Ferrari. Well, when was this? Because a block of salt and a Ferrari would have been a terrible combination. Uh, if this is if this is the sort of seventies and eighties. Here it fizzing from here. I, I think I think it was the nineteen sixties, and um, yeah, so it was it was before Michael Heseltine bought the company, and there was that infamous exchange where Simon Taylor, the then editor, um, said, um, "Who are you, and what are you doing in our office?" <laughs> Michael Heseltine says, "My name's Michael Heseltine, and I've just bought you." Um, apparently, Paddy Paddy was wealthy before he started uh, work as a journalist, so um, it, it it wasn't um, the it wasn't making words appear on page that uh, enabled him to afford a Ferrari. Let's change the subject before this gets deeply libelous. Um, on a separate but related note to the spectacle. Um, we channel the spirit of the Reverend Al Green in our analysis of Sergio Perez's situation. And he was the man single-handedly responsible for there being no world championship title battle last year. Um, Alex Kalinorkas makes a very fair analysis of why Checo is randomly still in a job. But he does speak about there being a gulf in class between Perez and Verstappen. So who's going to be the first to disagree Anyone? Yeah, you know, I don't think you're going to get much disagreement about the gulf <laughs> in 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 class between uh, Max and Sergio. I feel so sorry for Sergio Perez because, um, uh, and actually, as my wife was saying to me the other day, I don't know why anyone feels sorry for a number two driver in a winning team because there are many worse things that could happen in your life than find yourself in that position. But I do feel sorry for Sergio for one reason, and that is that that he and people around him, and from time to time, uh, the way that perhaps Christian needs to talk about it. I mean, they, they insinuate that he may have an opportunity to win the World Championship. He doesn't. He doesn't have the opportunity to win the World Championship unless something goes... I mean, unless Max was injured, you know, God forbid, um, and, and missed most of the season. Max has the beating of Sergio, uh, you know, the truth is in the data. You talk to anybody at Red Bull, they will tell you, we know who's the quicker driver by some margin. It's there for all of us to see. I mean, it it's kind of unarguable. And therefore, the pity of it is when Sergio is sitting in a press conference and someone's saying, so, well, so, so Sergio, so Checo, tell us about your championship chances this year. And, of course, he's going to talk it up because he – it's very difficult to think about what the alternative narrative could be. But I think that's kind of an interesting one because if he, you know, I remember talking to Gerhard Berger about, you know, being teammate to Ayrton and Gerhard saying, 
you know, you get to a point where you realize you're just not going to be there and you have a different role. Your role is to is to do the best job you can for the team, to win the race when it comes your way and otherwise hopefully finish second and, you know, have a one-two finish. And, you know, I remember in talking to Gerhard about it, he gave that advice as well to Eddie Irvine when he, he teamed up with uh, with Michael at Ferrari. And Gerhard said to Eddie, you know, just make sure they pay you in cash and keep the cash in your wardrobe at home because you're going to come home from the from work every day really annoyed, really pissed off that you're you're just unable to match your quicker teammate. He said, just open the wardrobe and have a look at the money because ultimately there are much worse things that you could be doing than being the number two. So it, it's... It's it's a pity that Sergio's in that position because I think he I think he genuinely struggles with the fact that he got what he's always wanted. You know, he got to the top of the pile, he got into the world championship winning car, he got into the dominant machine, he got into the best team. He's earning good money. I mean, everything is there for him, and it's that big moment when you suddenly discover there's someone alongside you who's just on a different level, and that's tough. And, um, you know, I think he's done admirably well. I, I just wish that he didn't feel the need to rise to the questions about, you know, is this going to be your year? It's never going to be his year as long as he's up against Max. Yeah, he's on another level, but he's not Dane Bowers. Sorry, 90s boy band joke there. <laughs> he's gone straight over Matt Q's head. He's gonna, next words out of his mouth is, I wasn't even born when another level. I wasn't even hits. born then, exactly. <clears throat> I'm going to quietly Google in the background and prove that another level did have hits during your lifetime. But anyway, your contribution, please. <laughs> I was, uh, sorry, I was uh, distracted then. Yes, it's, yeah, Alex's piece is, does touch upon it as well, is that, um, you know, with the with the other candidates that can step in to replace Perez, because you know, obviously Red Bull has enormous previ- uh, uh, previous for sort of swinging the axe and getting rid. But as Alex touches upon, there has been a shift in the power dynamic at the Red Bull sort of F one operation, if you like, and that is that you know since the death of Masterchitz, you've had Oliver Mintzlaff come in as CEO, and he wants to understand why one team is at the top and his other team is at the bottom. So, you know, there's been more engineers or aero staff going towards Alvatore and they're sort of consolidating in, um, in, uh, in Bista. And then you have, you know, uh, and part of that is because that was sort of delegated to Christian Horner, if you like. And with Horner taking control, there's an understanding potentially that, um, uh, that Mar- or Helmut Marco has been marginalised ever so slightly. Marco is the one behind the most brutal axe shoppings and Horner less so, although he is in agreement with them. It's it's usually Marco that instigates it. And you have Horner slightly softer and him publicly saying, we're committed to Perez. He has a contract in place. So perhaps Perez will you know, see it through to the end of his contract. It's very hard to envisage you know, them renewing terms with one another that Red Bull would sign some new paperwork. So the bigger question mark is, you know, when will Perez go? Will he see it through to the end of, or to the to the set expiry date at the end of this year? Or will, you know, the chop come soon enough and 
day by day, Ricardo is increasingly the leading candidate because of his position and also because in the week we're recording this, Leclerc and Norris have been taken off the market. And although everyone could be bought out for a price, they those two look sort of more committed to their project. So it's, it's Ricardo, who's obviously had his dalliances with Red, uh, Renault and McLaren and, and, and will come full circle. But he is there waiting in the wings. He was set certain parameters for the behind closed doors tests and simulator runs, and he's hit all of them. And, you know, and okay, he was slightly derailed by the Zandvoort shunt, which which uh, snapped his wrist, but he, he is there. He's a ready-made replacement who Horner likes. So even if sort of Perez can do a Valtteri Bottas and admit he's been in denial and it will not one day beat Verstappen, he has to still close the gap because he's got a ready-made ready replacement. And all it takes is for McLaren to deliver on... So actually, to go back earlier in the podcast, I said it was nice that my feature was still in date. My column was rendered completely obsolete because of McLaren. <laughs> I said sort of McLaren seemed a bit negative and then they've come out been overwhelmingly positive at the livery launch. But if they can sort of hit the ground running in 2024 and then by the time David Sanchez and Rob Marshall sort of uh, their input takes hold in sort of six months time, uh, Mercedes, if they can hit the ground running with their new car concept, Red Bull need a rear gunner. They don't need someone who's you know, um, two hundredths a second, uh, two hundredths a lap slower than Verstappen. They can afford a little bit more margin than that, but the current four tenths is inexcusable, and they're disappearing in a race. They need someone closer, and and Perez has had his opportunity, and the you know, and the first half of Alex's feature could almost be a cut and paste. Obviously, he'd never plagiarised his own work, but it could almost be a cut and paste from 2022, couldn't it? Where you have the narrative up until Baku that maybe Perez is in this. So he's had the opportunity and then he's had the massive um, uh, troughs and then picked himself up slowly and then upward and then down. It's history repeating itself. So Red Bull have the evidence they need. So if he's not delivering, he yeah, the, if, if he's not delivering, then the justification to keep him becomes harder and harder when you have a replacement who is also in this modern era of F1 extremely marketable and popular as Daniel Ricciardo. So there's so many sort of positives and there's also a sense, not necessarily in the media, but sent like fan perception, almost willing Ricciardo to get the seat and for Perez, Perez to go. So just with all those, all those factors, if, if Perez is anything less than eight out of 10 every weekend up until May time, then, you know, you'd you'd think he's a goner potentially. Yeah, yeah. It's you, interesting you that a... Norris took him off the table. Sorry, that Norris. It's interesting that Norris got taken off the table, rather. Yeah, and you, you've you've raised a really important point um, there, Matt, which is that <clears throat> if Mercedes and McLaren can get their sums right, and you've got two drivers delivering for both of those teams, or or, or for either one of them to the point where Red Bull is finding itself racing with one hand tied behind its back because Sergio's not quite delivering. I mean, there were so many races last year where, frankly, it was embarrassing. You know, you, you kind of, you had Max way up front, just in a complete class of his own. And Sergio had another problem, another issue, uh, another little unforced error, uh, another excuse to have to, to come up with. And, um, Ultimately, you know, he ultimately he did kind of recover and he came back. Uh, and I was looking through his results 
of all the races last night. And it actually remind. I was kind of hoping to open them up and it would remind me that it wasn't that bad. And actually it reminded me just how bad it was and really wasn't very good. Um, you know, parts of the season where he, he must have had his head in his hands and the team as well. Very, very difficult to keep keep going under that circumstances. But but the reality is, as you say, if you have a Piastri and a Norris absolutely caning it uh, for McLaren, or you have uh, you know Russell and Hamilton uh, making the most of a resurgent Mercedes this year, Red Bull will get bored very, very quickly if there is a gulf between between the two and as you say there's almost a well I'm a, I'm a believer that you know there are narratives in sport all sports which are just stories waiting to be written and the Ricardo back to Red Bull story has been a story that we've all been waiting for 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 kind of years and it's going to be interesting to see how Daniel handles it when it comes around because um, you know more than anyone he will be conscious of the fact that he's coming back into Red Bull as not just what looks like a number two to Max, but actually as teammate to someone who's the dominant world champion of the era. You know, he, he left Red Bull before Max had gotten to that point and now Max is absolutely at the top of his game. And uh, But I think Daniel is older, wiser. He'll perhaps have a different perspective this time round. And I think with that different perspective, he actually does become a slightly more dangerous teammate for Max because uh, Max needs a teammate alongside him who pushes him and who has got the has got the mindset, you know, the mental ability to deal with being teammate to Max. And I think, oddly enough, I think that that could well be Daniel. Yeah, that's the big challenge, isn't it? Yeah, I yeah. think even if you're being charitable to Perez. And say that because the expectation is, isn't it, if you're teammates and you have this at Mercedes with Hamilton and Russell and you have this at McLaren now with uh, Norris and Piastri, that if one of them has, um, you know, if one of them is like lately in the garage in Q3 or is wading into qualifying with like a five place grid penalty, the expectation is that the other one can step up and take pole position. Even if you're being charitable with Perez and say that's not going to happen. You at least lead him if Verstappen has a bad day or gearbox trouble. You at least lead him to be able to like stop the Mercedes from running one and two or, you know, splitting their strategies to cover off Verstappen. You need, you need Prez. He doesn't have to go out and win, but it's if he is letting the other, like the other teammates work together to keep Verstappen back. That's when it becomes a major issue because, you know, Verstappen's points alone this season would have won, or sorry, Verstappen's points alone last year would have won Red Bull, the Constructors' Championship. So it's that that stuff isn't on the line at the minute, but it's if, yeah, Hamilton can do an undercut and Russell an overcut and they finish 1-2 because they've got Perez in fourth place. He's not breathing down breathing down the neck, forcing them into, forcing them into errors. Same, same for qualifying, that psychological bit, if you know, you, you know that Perez is within half, half a tenth. And you might just have that snap of oversteer that squanders it. But if you feel like you're coasting to a one-two, you know, on those very rare days where there is a tiny technical red Red Bull technical glitch or a Verstappen error, whatever, he's he's not providing that competition, that that sort of thorn in the side to Mercedes and McLaren. Uh, so that and that's what it will come down to, isn't it? 
that's what it will come down to. I do think with Ricardo though, I wonder that that will be an interesting sort of uh, plot point because I know he's done his test and obviously reintegrated into the AlphaTauri family, but quite how different it will be when he does step back, if he does step back into that second Red Bull car, sort of the churn of the engineers on the car, what's the balance of familiar and unfamiliar faces and having left from when it was a 50-50 team, a 60-40 team, perhaps the tide just turning into Verstappen's favour to going back in where it is almost, you know, moulded around him. Just that'll be that'll be an interesting to see how 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 he reports that back. Well, it's all good storylines for the coming season, hopefully, or when whenever the, the the plug does get pulled on um, Sergio Perez. But it's it's nice to have some some storylines to talk about. And um, you did allude to the fact that sometimes you know with monthly magazines stuff happens that makes uh, your, your your columns or whatever a, a little bit. Um, not not dated, but you know the the, the real life does um, provide the odd rug pull. I, I believe it was uh, Sir Harold Macmillan who said, uh, "Events, dear boy, events." Um, and you know, the, the things things always happen between the mag going to press and arriving on the newsstands. And um, this month we've we've had team name again, haven't we? Um, Alfa Romeo have rebranded as Stake. Some people might consider that well done. Some people might consider it That's undercooked. Awful. Uh, those, <laughs> those people are rare. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, uh, we, we 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 also touched on earlier the 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 change in leadership at Red Bull and what there's. Oh dear, oh dear! I I really felt for the marketing department at AlphaTauri, or uh, as, as as they are formerly known, um, when you know the the C suite drop the bomb on them you're going to be called and I'm, I'm going to read this very carefully visa cash app rb which we must not accidentally acronymize into vcrap um it's, it's not a name that trips off the tongue so you, sorry to interrupt Collins, but did you notice when the press release landed that all the prs they have their contact details at the bottom all their emails are gone they only had phone numbers so i don't think even they've worked out what their at gmail should be anymore <laughs> I, was, I thought I, was, I had to get in touch with one of them i looked and it was like you know per john smith at alphatory.com now they don't have any so i think they're working out you know Whatever CompuServe one two three four it, it must be to make it fit. Maybe maybe they should just have a combination of numbers. Is, is it Ga- Gary yeah. Watkins is still yeah. you know one two eight five nine six or three at CompuServe dot com. Yeah. <laughs> just the lunacy. You, you would think in this day and age where presentation is everything that you know the little ducks would have been set in a line before the whole thing was set in motion and people would at least sort of know what the identity was going to be. And instead we've just sort of had a, a banner and, and that's it. I mean, who on earth thought this was a good idea? Yeah. It's, you know, it's a topic that's come up time and time again. Um, you know, how can a sponsor ensure that they kind of own the name of the team? And there was a time when back in the tobacco days, you know, we did, we would talk about Marlborough McLaren and, uh, and, and possibly even Camel Lotus. And then you think about JPS, you know, JPS Lotus has become JPS and sort of uh, interesting how well those tobacco companies that I mentioned did did manage to wrap their brand around the team. Uh, Peter Windsor uh, tweeted the other day that 
1974, McLaren actually were officially known as Texaco Marlboro. Um, that was the team name. But, of course, everyone still called them McLaren. So it's not that this hasn't been tried before. I think the, the stake and Vija Cash App uh, deals are are really quite a significant attempt by marketing folk to to make the most of what's happened to Formula One. We've got these huge audiences around the world. The, the teams have become more famous than than they than ever. The there is a opportunity with the lesser teams, lesser in terms of the brand value of the team name, lesser in terms of their results and their stature. So you can you can see that as a commercial opportunity where you sit down with a team like AlphaTauri and say, actually, if we're going to rebrand, let's just go the whole hog and we, we, you know, we take over the team name as Stake have done at, at, at Sauber. And what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that those teams have given up on whatever equity is in their brand name. There is no brand name at the team based in Faenza anymore uh minority became toro rosso str i mean i mean i used to drive me used to drive me mad when i would see people calling it str and writing that and you understand why because who wants to write scuderia toro rosso you know across the whatever copy they're filing or uh you know social media posts they're putting um and then alpha tori which you know i always felt was a was a wrong turn for red bull because one of the things that Dietrich Mateschitz himself always acknowledged is that you mustn't ever think you can get into someone else's industry and become an expert. And it's very, very difficult. He had managed to do it in the drinks industry with Red Bull. To go into the clothing business, you know, AlphaTauri to me was unlikely to become a long-term project. And so it's proven in terms of the the team name. So there's no there's no value perceived in the name of that team and Faenza, just as extraordinarily there's no perceived value in the name of Sauber in Hinville. So they've just they've been happy to say, yeah, we'll just sell our team name and that you can rebrand that. And there's so much commercial value in that. That's how we'll extract it. So we're not able to win. We're not able to be at the top of the pile in Formula One. So actually the other the other way we can cash in is to allow uh, a commercial partner to take over their the team name. But the fact remains that Despite this brave effort, and there's lots of benefit from it. I mean, stake. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm here in America, and I'm doing a presentation tomorrow, and I've had, you know, I've got the stake F1 logo on a, on a presentation that I'm giving to some executives here. Um, so there's no doubt that, in terms of how Formula One in 2024 is presented in front of the media, fans, all the collateral associated with Formula One, you're going to be seeing stake, 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 stake. And and they'll be delighted with that. That's great. Similarly, Visa, Cash App, they'll be delighted with all you know, every the fact that every program, every garage hoarding, you know, hospitality suites, everything, Visa Cash App will be all over the place. They'll be delighted with that outcome. However, when it comes to the media, when it comes to television commentators, when it comes to fans talking about the teams, they're not going to be—they're not going to be referring to it in that way. And um, there will be a fallback. And everyone's already, you know, I mean, e- even Formula One. I thought it was quite quite amusing that the day after the Visa Cash App RB team was announced, Formula One put out all the launch dates, and for that team, they just have 
the RB launch date. I mean, even Formula <laughs> One got even Formula One got rid of Visa Cash App. Well, I just called it RB, and um, that you know Andrew Benson uh, tweeted a couple of weeks ago that at the BBC they. He said we had a 10-minute chat in the office about what we would call the Stake F1 team, and we decided we'd probably call it Cerber. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's marketeers trying to make the most of, of the opportunity as they see it. But I do think it's a pity that the team formerly known as Minardi and Cerber have allowed their brands and the value associated with those names built over many years to be kind of poured down the drain because that's the way they – need to move in order to generate revenue i'd say we had a similar conversation at sort of the autosport desk is because you've got almost got a chicken and egg scenario where you know so much of our website traffic is driven by google and that's what you know that's what pays my wages and all of that so what's at the top of google is it you know people searching visa f1 team or rbf1 team but if there's you know or does that does that not have a groundswell until David Croft has said it several times because that's what most of the English speaking audience or who most of the English speaking audience listen to. But, you know, I'd, it's, it almost feels like, so I started um, in 2019 covering a British touring car championship and you needed a crib sheet between, you know, go fix auto aid breakdown rubbish. It's called team hard. You needed that crib sheet to translate. And, and basically after, you know, after the new PRs had come in and said, no, you really must include our sponsor names. So we go, absolutely not then the conversation dies down you get your t- team name like what's st- stake f1 if they come to us and go why are you calling a sauber and it's from pr at saubergroup.com you know where yeah. <laughs> the argument for it but i have to say when i saw i saw this sort of debate a bit on on social media so it's it's copying other people's ideas but i'm amazed that f1 who get the sign off on these things allowed this to go through because you have you know, this huge popularity wave, some more eyes on F1 than ever. And you need to double down on that with something catchy. Whether you think it's cringy or whatever, like, you know, what's a, a criminal, almost like the F1 theme tune, which on its own is not an amazing piece of music by Brian Taylor, but it's become sort of synonymous with F1 just because it's over and over again. If you want something over and over again, it's got to have cachet or roll off the tongue. Visa cash up is none of those, even if it's just been Visa f1 team or whatever so i'm surprised they allowed it on the entry list because it, it does look a bit it does look a bit amateur and you know i know there's the old saying that there's only one thing worse than being talked about but a visa coming in do they want okay we are niche media we're niche within a niche but do they do they want people coming in and slagging off their marketing efforts and and when the eternal you know communications are coming out that even within the team, they're not really sure what they're calling it, what they're calling it in briefings or in presentations or what their own chassis is down as. And then they expect to communicate that with the wider world. I mean, it's got like, you know, a, a smacks of like being a Tory policy almost where it's so hard to communicate. You know, unless it's like anything, if we're pitching a story and it takes a hundred words to pitch a story, that's too much. It's too complicated. Therefore, it's, it's not of interest to people. It's got too much nuance. Same with this. If your team name is more than five words long, it's probably it's probably a bit too much of a mouthful. And I think it's a poor look and Visa in itself is a strong brand. You know, if it's a Visa racing team, you go, wow, what a blue chip sponsor that's come in. But the fact it's so convoluted and they're targeting a very specific part of the brand just makes it look far too fiddly and a bit low rent, really. 
Yeah, and as one of my ex formerly known as Twitter as, followers. Like that's my credit score going through the floor. <laughs> like, all you can hear is Visa log on and just tank my rating. They're going to destroy you. Yeah. Um, the, as, as, as one of my followers on X, formerly known as Twitter, said, you know, the last, the last time a credit card company took out title sponsorship <laughs> of a Formula One team, it didn't end brilliantly, did it? But um, another thing oh, is. So, uh, of- uh, so, so, sorry, sorry. You're talking about MasterCard. Yes. Yes, they they segued beautifully over to the team which had formerly been known as Benson and Hedges Total Jordan Peugeot. (laughs) 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 And we we had five wonderful and dare I say it priceless seasons with MasterCard and they were uh, they were great fun to deal with. Um, I got a message from I actually got a message from a former MasterCard executive last week when the announcement came through about Visa saying oh, it's only taken Visa 25 years to copy what MasterCard realized was a good idea in 1997 um, and he then said uh, he said I'm not sure about the gimmicky team name they'll they'll be telling us next that the driver has to put their pin number in to start the car uh, to go to leave the pits and uh, that the, all the racing has to be contactless from now on so <laughs> It's um, it's going to be interesting to see what actually happens with this thing. But I agree with you, Matt. I think it's it's an interesting thing that Formula One have permitted. Um, and dare I raise Mr. E's name, but I, I, in the Eccleston era, this would not have been allowed to happen. So it's interesting to see that just how quickly Formula One have been prepared to uh, permit this kind of commercial commercial abuse of team names which uh, I think seems unlikely to become a f- seems unlikely to become a feature of Formula One in the long term I think we're what we're witnessing is uh, is a blip to do with those two particular teams I want to see drivers actually own it and have some fun with it for instance back in my years of covering sports car racing in America the one of the Porsche teams one, among their portfolio of sponsors was a board game called Cranium which was some sort of it was like a nice version of Cards Against Humanity before that happened you know you had to do challenges with stuff and one of the drivers was just brilliant he just he just dropped the name of it whenever it suited it if you asked a question about their strategy he'd say, he'd say with little twinkle in his eye we really use our craniums <laughs> and we could just have some yeah, just just have a little bit of fun with it right well I'm, we're gonna have to wrap it up because mark you're about to your your carriage is about to turn into a pump i have it isn't it i have a hard stop i have a hard stop in two minutes so thank you very much for doing that yeah, it's uh, let's let's not drive this podcast into a wall. We will be back next month. In the interim, there are uh, some marvelous subscription offers available on our website because you know the team the uh, new season's coming up. So if you want to get, I think three issues for a pound an issue, uh, you can go to our website gpracing.com. Sign up before we go to press because there is only one post. This is going to sound terribly partridge, but yeah, once they're posted, they're posted. So get it done now, gpracing.com. If you want to know where to find our magazine in the shops, go to the store finder, seymour.co.uk. That's Seymour, spelled as in Miranda Seymour, author of the... I'll say that again. Author of the Bugatti Queen in search of a motor racing legend. Thanks. We'll be back next month.
Social Podcast Network.